This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you're a boomer or a Gen X parent, here's a newsflash for you. Your teen years were nothing like your own teen's teen years. According to my guest for this part of today's show, if you think your teenager is more stressed, anxious, and depressed than you were back in your day, you're right. If you think that's because he's lazy or weak or she's spoiled and self-centered, you're wrong. Our kids are clearly suffering in unprecedented numbers, just as we would have had we grown up in their world. And by their world, we mean one that's dominated by technology and cyberbullying, by pop culture that glorifies celebrities and violence, and by brutal peer pressure that's fueled by social media, booze, stronger weed, and meaner sex. When you add in some daunting academic demands, poor nutrition, chronic sleep deprivation, and having the brain of an adolescent, well, it's no wonder that so many teens feel helpless, and it's no wonder that so many parents feel helpless. Parents want to help, of course, but how? Well, it turns out that the key is resilience, which helps teens handle difficulty, overcome obstacles, and bounce back from setbacks. I'm Armin Brutt. We'll start talking about resilience and how we could give our overwhelmed teenagers a lot more of it when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brutt, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. Take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michael Bradley, who's the author of Crazy Stressed, Saving Today's Overwhelmed Teens with Love, Laughter, and the Science of Resilience. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about how... Well, actually, you, you make a contention that today's teenagers are the most anxious in 50 years. Correct. Talk about that. How, how is that even being assessed? We have some uh, good, <clears throat> good data that, um, where, where somebody went through the archive test reviews to diagnose anxiety and depression over five decades. And those numbers pretty clearly state what most of us in the business have known, which is this is the most depressed and anxious set of teenagers we've ever seen recently. And how is that being measured, though? I mean, to to the lay person. Well, uh, the the tests that we use to clinically diagnose this um, have been archived over 50 years. 
and and that was the most reliable data that uh, a woman named Jean Twenge came up with. Oh yeah, uh, that showed this trend uh, where there has been a pretty precipitous drop in uh, also in teen resilience that corresponds with this increase in anxiety and depression. Well, Gene Twenge also wrote about Generation Me and a an increase over that same period of time in essentially self-centeredness. Are are the two related? Yeah, they are. Um, the The culture has shifted so that kids are more self-centered. Their goals tend to be more extrinsic and materialistic. Uh, but they're also living in a culture that pretty much promotes a lot of negative values, things that deteriorate resilience in teenagers. It's kind of a perfect storm we've got going. And uh, ultimately, the, the worst statistic really depicts it powerfully, which is teen suicide is pretty much off the charts. In the same 50 years, teen suicide is up four to 500 percent, and the general population is up perhaps 100 percent. That's pretty amazing. So you have, and I mean, it's, it seems like they intuitively wouldn't go together. You'd think that self-centered kids would have higher self-esteem and that they wouldn't be as depressed, that they would be at least full of themselves and, and thinking that they're better off. But you're saying, I mean, is there a causation there or just a correlation, I guess, is what it comes down to? Well, again, we can only prove the correlation, but your question is excellent in that we've promoted a, a erroneous concept of happiness for teenagers. That's the, you know, another book that's come out is called The Unselfie. Um, again, talking about the self-centeredness of teenagers, it, that, that narcissism does not promote true happiness. True happiness is not yippee yippee yay yay. I get everything I want, which a lot of these kids are working to do. True happiness has to do with being engaged in the world, giving <clears throat> as well as receiving, uh, doing hard things, uh, feeling good about yourself. Actually, comes from doing significant work, having purpose and passion. It does not come from having a lot of material goods. Now, it seems like you could have, in a parallel world, you could have this this uh, narcissism, and you could also have the depression and the anxiety that's going along with it. But the interesting question to me is, what happened to resilience in there? That it, it seems people have been able, over long periods of time, to recover from depression and anxiety, and they've been able to tell themselves that they can pick themselves up and dust themselves off, you know, the, the whole thing. And parents have been better at getting these messages across. So where did resilience go? How did it disappear? Well, we, we speculate that there's been sort of a polarization of parenting styles. We have more stressed families than we've had in five decades, single-parent families, parents that are struggling financially, that have little to do with their kids. So you could call that the zero on the 10 scale. And we also have the helicopter parents. They're enmeshed. They're super engaged. They manage their children's lives meticulously. They plan them. They run them from activity to activity. And it turns out that resilience is not built in either of those parenting styles. It's built in the four, five, six range, really, where you seek to help kids learn to control themselves. You don't abandon them, but you also don't rush in and take charge of their lives. That's something that I think we've lost in the parenting world. So we're talking about the kids being more depressed and more anxious. <clears throat> How does that play out, though? I mean, I think as people think that they understand what depression and anxiety are, and you probably would recognize many of the symptoms, but how does it play out over the long term for, for teenagers who are growing up with that 
deficit? Well, it, again, as part of the perfect storm issue, these uh, pathologies of anxiety and depression hit them at incredibly early ages where they're very fragile neurologically. Uh, their brains are just beginning the most advanced development of their lives. So they're overstressed at a time when they don't really have <clears throat> the wiring, let alone the maturity, to be able to sort out the stressors and respond to them. Their, their culture is is really a hyper-adrenalized one, largely because of the electronics. They get pounded with excessive stimulation um, 20 hours a day. Uh, they're, they're just glued to screens, and having excessive stimulation, being unable to sort out your life, find meaning and purpose, and by the way, they're sleep-deprived. They're getting less sleep than any other generation of teenagers. You have this perfect mix to build anxiety and depression, and to make kids feel like life is just not worth living. And then that plays out in the higher suicide rate that you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, they, they, they take it quite literally that it's not, not worth living. They do, because the teenage brain, particularly in younger adolescents, it's more a child brain than an adult brain. So they're very much in the moment. They're very existential. So when a, a 13-year-old feels that everything has gone black and there's no point, that is what they feel, and they often then proceed to, I want to end my life, whereas an adult, you or I could say, yeah, this really sucks right now, but I've been here before. I know the sun will come up tomorrow. Kids do not have that maturity and that resilience that adults have to handle these sorts of stressors. Who is responsible for instilling resilience in kids? Oh, great question. I think as a culture, uh, ironically, when we paid less attention to kids, if you would, um, they were more resilient back in the day. It was not a joke. You know, my mother would throw us out of the house in the morning in the summertime, and the door was closed. You came home for dinner. I, I don't necessarily advocate that, but it was a resilience-building exercise. We had to negotiate our world. We learned a lot. Today, parents go to the other extreme where they, if they can, they typically over-organize a child's life and run them from activity to activity. We don't permit kids to get bored. <laughs> Turns out that boredom is very therapeutic. Um, allowing a child to not have something to do as long as they're not into dangerous activities is critical because then they start to reflect, they generate their own activities, um, and they think, whereas if we stuck them in some structured learning activity, they're not really thinking. They're absorbing information and right. spitting it back. And how much do you think the the idea, and this goes along with the helicopter parenting and some of the other modalities of parenting that are, are off on one end of the scale, where the kids are not learning how to fail and learning how to, to get back up and recover from their mistakes, which is, is a different definition of resilience? Yeah, we don't permit failure. We've decided that failure with our kids is somehow a pathology, a toxin, and we've forgotten that. I mean, you know, in my own life, I learned much more from my failures, much more shaped from my losses than from my successes. And we have somehow decided that will not happen. We don't allow our kids to fail at school, to get cut from a baseball team. Uh, we don't even allow them to lose a friend. Often parents will jump in and start to argue with the friend's parent that you have to remain friends with my child. That's insane. That's where we have lost um, the resilience capability of normal day-to-day -day living for an adolescent. I remember having these conversations with my kids who are 
slightly out of the teen years at this point, but about jobs and them not wanting to do certain kinds of jobs because they thought it was beneath them. And my saying, you know, I, I can't even count how many jobs that I've had, but some of them you learn a tremendous amount from, like I never want to do this again is, is a very valuable lesson that you don't learn if you've been coaxed through or pushed through all the way. Yeah. And part of that is tolerating frustration, <clears throat> and that's something else that kids have largely lost the capability of doing. And as parents, we've decided that they shouldn't be frustrated. They should be you know, pleasantly occupied all the time. But tolerating frustration is a key ingredient in success in life. Michael Bradley is the author of Crazy Stressed, Saving Today's Overwhelmed Teens with Love, Laughter, and the Science of Resilience. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Michael Bradley about the book and get into some of the strategies and tactics that we can use to help overcome some of this. Hey, there he is. How's it going? I'm having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand or what? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. Are you okay? I'm having a stroke. Your face looks weird, too. I'm having a stroke. Are you having a seizure or something? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. I'm having a stroke. You just need to know the sudden signs. Look for FAST, F-A-S-T. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, or S, speech difficulty, then T, time. Time to call 911 immediately, because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment, and that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. Know the sudden signs, face, arm, speech, time. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Music is a bridge between the material and the spiritual. My name is Harvey Lauer, and I'm 82. As a blind person, you have to be aware that nobody can tell you what you can or can't do. You really have to try things. My folks got me a little radio in 1940, and that was the best Christmas present I ever got. When I was 11 years old is when I started to... Uh, play music, play the piano, and then the accordion, and then the cello. My wife, who was also blind, was a good cook. When she died, that's when I started Meals on Wheels. America, let's do lunch. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Bradley, who's the author of Crazy Stressed. And we kind of set the stage in the first part of the show. I want to get into some of the strategies and tactics that you've, that you've got in the book about things that we can do to overcome this lack of resilience or the disappearing resilience that kids are, are just not getting. And you have a really intriguing subtitle to one of the chapters, Chairs Have Four-Legged Soldiers and Teens Need Seven. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, the, uh, the researchers in the field of resilience have come up with seven, seven uh, kind of clusters of activities and assets that we find in teenagers who do have resilience. It turns out those characteristics are what we find when we study successful kids. For years, we've studied unsuccessful kids. Uh, and now we're finding a, a whole new line of inquiry, which is, what about the kids who do great? 
in this crazy culture. Uh, why is that? How is that? And we find that they tend to have these assets um, that stand out. Ken Ginsberg uh, really pioneered this research with the American Academy of Pediatrics and identified you know, these, these seven clusters of activities and assets. And they seem to be the key in terms of summarizing them. It, it turns out that it, it really is redefining our mission statement as parents, that we have to stop attempting to control our kids, except in a life-threatening situation. But we have to change our mission, rather, to teaching our children to control themselves. And that means not solving their problems whenever it's a non-lethal situation to absolutely step back and hand the power to the teenager say, frankly, I don't know what you should do. What do you think you should do? And then the key part, Armin, is they must handle the consequences. If they decide to skip classes because they want to go to a sports activity, they have to deal that through with a teacher. The parent doesn't write a bogus note to get them off the hook. But the parent has to be involved more as a coach and advisor, but not as the decision maker. Well, how does that work? in real life when you have, perhaps you have a 14 or 15-year-old, and as a parent, you haven't done that, that you've been, I don't want to say guilty, that's the wrong the wrong phrase, but you've been a helicopter parent or a snowplow parent, and you have fallen into the trap of doing the things that are generally supported by the culture these days, of, of taking care of your kids and not allowing them to fail and stuff like that. No, I'm not, not making a judgment here, but just say that that's the kind of parent that you are, and listening to this interview and saying, you know, whew, I really need to change some stuff. How do you start? I think you start with a conversation with your child. You head out to the coffee shop and say, you know, I've been thinking about this, reflecting on my own life, talking to my peers, and I think I've been over-controlling in your life. You know, I do have some rules. I have a few red lines. You know, you can't do drugs. don't want you to become a parent. Um you know, not into violence, but aside from those things, I am going to pull back. For example, this summer, instead of doing the enrichment camps that I always kind of send you to, what would you like to do? Um, why don't you go online and take a look at some of the gap experiences that they have? Um, a lot of parents worry about use of time, and they're thinking that they have to kind of give their kid every advantage they can to get them into an elite school elite high school, elite college, and it turns out that going to elite schools is by no means a guarantee of success or happiness in life. It's more about finding your own purpose and passion. And the only way that happens is for people to explore, to make decisions, <clears throat> to make mistakes, to do things that were a complete waste of time. But they chose it. They did the decision-making, and they bore the consequences. My son Ross, when he was 13, decided social studies was a government plot to control his mind and announced <laughs> he wasn't going to cooperate in the program. And he's, you know, gifted kid and all like that. And Sydney and I, my wife, just, you know, looked at each other and said, cool. And he looked at us, ah, you're not going to make me do my homework? We said, no. The teacher called us in, ultimately, for the, the grade conference and said, if I did it by the numbers, Ross would get an F. And he was inviting us to argue the grade. And we said, well, if he earned an F, we wanted to get an F. And this teacher, I'll never forget, put down his pencil and said, in nine years of teaching, you're the first set of parents at this school that didn't argue for a better grade for the child. Uh, huh. And it, it really was a lightning bolt moment for us because we very much wanted Ross to make a decision like that. 
to bear the consequences for it right so that he would learn and in fact he did learn well here's the complication there that i'm that i'm wondering about is you talk a lot about brain development and how the brain is not fully developed until the mid 20s or whatever so how th- there's a, a gray area there with as parents to say, look, my kid maybe isn't capable of making a lifetime decision at the age of 14, so maybe I need to step in and guide things a little bit. Yeah, well, that's where you get into the art form of parenting, and every child is a different book, and every parent has to make that decision. But when you ask in general, you know, what is it that we're doing too much of, it is taking too much control. Um, I did a, a training session at for uh, CEOs of you know, Fortune 500 companies for their hiring practices because they said for decades they would hire the top 1% of 1% from Stanford and MIT and so forth, and it isn't working. They said that these are kids who are unbelievable students and unbelievable athletes, but when they put them to work, that often they sit at their desks and wait for the next syllabus, whereas the kid they take from the state school who got some C's and maybe had a brush with the law, but who took that terrible job, as you're talking about, chopping onions in a diner, that kid would roll up his sleeves. He knew how to improvise. He, he knew how to do open field writing. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a very common thing. I remember working on a, a ghostwriting project with somebody, and we were talking about this exact idea that there was some colleges, I think it was in Washington, the University of Washington, Oh, no, it was, it was companies in Seattle that were not hiring people who had graduated from the University of Washington. And they were saying the reason is that these kids are coming out of there and they can't think. They yep. get great grades. They've done all sorts of wonderful things. They've built shelters in Costa Rica and uh, all the things that you're supposed to do. But they just don't know how to think on their own. Exactly. And often they're afraid to think. They're afraid to make decisions because they haven't done that and they haven't developed those skills. And also learned that screwing up is how we learn ultimately to succeed. They've been taught, and that's what we've let them down, that you must always win. You can never lose. And again, failure is incredibly therapeutic to teenagers. Well, let me get back to this idea of the, the gray area between letting kids have the, the results of their actions endure the consequences and stepping in a little I mean, if you have a kid who genuinely, say your son, for example, it wasn't just social studies, that he decided that everything was a plot and he was not going to go to school at all. Y- you, you would say as a responsible parent probably, that's not a good idea. That's, gonna, you know, that's a middle school thing. That's going to affect the kind of high school you get into, which could in turn affect the colleges and, and many other things. Well, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah. Well, that's correct. And, and what you do is you try to use incentives but you also try, versus punishment and compelling, you try the discussion. See, people are so focused on the outcome or the decision, they, they miss the magic of the discussion, of the sitting down and saying, well, Ross, what about school is making you so upset? What is happening there? What can you do about it? What do you think you should do? You know, have you talked to other people? In other words, you turn the decision into a project. Only at the last moment might you have to step in and say, well, sorry, but I, you know, I read the state laws and you're required to go to school, so that's it. But you don't cut to the chase. Anytime a kid wants to do something, particularly if it's crazy, you don't jump in and say, absolutely not. Are you nuts? You're going to school. You rather open it up. Again, head to the coffee shop and say, tell me what's going on. What are your thoughts on this? 
what options do you see? What is the point of school? See, we lecture kids all the time, and it is a complete waste of time and effort. Worse than that, it frustrates them. It has no meaning. We tell them things when their minds are not open to a particular subject. But when a kid wants to drink beer, wants to do drugs, wants to drop out of school, their mind is open. That's a magic moment. Now you can say, cool, you brought the subject up. Now let's go talk about it. And that's when you get those wheels turning about, well, what can school do for you? Have you researched what people make who don't complete high school versus do complete college? Yeah. Have you yeah. researched what school can do in terms of freedom? Because money actually is freedom. So now they're listening because they brought it up. They have the agenda. Michael Bradley is the author of Crazy Stressed, Saving Today's Overwhelmed Teens with Love, Laughter, and the Science of Resilience. Michael, thanks so much. Great to have you. Thank you, Armin. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I liked things to always be the same. Anything new or different would scare and upset me. I was very sensitive to lights and sounds. It was almost like I had bigger eyes and ears than everyone else. So I built secret hiding places where nothing could get in. I didn't like looking people in the eye. It made me feel uncomfortable. I'd throw big tantrums over little things like when my socks didn't match. Sometimes I'd do the same things over and over. Until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. If you've got a teenager, you know that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on them these days. And there's also a tremendous amount of pressure to use substances to help them through some of these difficulties. And that's the topic of this week's Ask Mr. Dad. Dear Mr. Dad, I have been noticing kids who look much younger than high school age buying Frappuccino-style drinks at Starbucks and similar coffee places. It worries me because I didn't think caffeine was good for children. Is coffee really bad for children? If so, what's your advice to parents whose children can buy their own snacks after school? You are absolutely right. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration says that for adults, 300 to 400 milligrams a day, that's about three cups of coffee, is generally safe. But the FDA hasn't established safe levels for children. Most pediatricians, however, say that children under 12 shouldn't have any caffeine and kids 12 to 18 shouldn't consume more than 100 milligrams a day. Those recommendations, of course, haven't stopped kids from getting it. So where's it all coming from? Well, until fairly recently, children's main source of caffeine was soda. However, ever since researchers started drawing the connection between sugary drinks and obesity, soda consumption has actually been on the decline. Today, children, especially teenagers, are turning to coffee and energy drinks, both of which generally pack a lot more caffeine than soda. For example, a can of soda typically has 25 to 35 milligrams. Energy drinks have 80 to 350 milligrams, and one of those fancy coffee house drinks can have upwards of 300 or 400 milligrams. Here's why caffeine is such a problem for kids. It interferes with sleep patterns. On average, school kids ages 6 to 13 need 9 to 11 hours of sleep every night. 
Teens can get by with an hour less, but caffeine can keep kids awake later and make the sleep they do get less restful. Caffeine starts working within minutes of being ingested, and its effects can last as long as six hours. Oral health. Caffeine is often acidic and can increase the risk of developing cavities. Caffeine drinks may also stain the teeth. It's addictive. Over time, some people may have to increase the amount of caffeine they consume to get the same effect. And for most caffeine addicts, abruptly quitting causes headaches and other withdrawal symptoms. Diet. Caffeine can suppress the diet, which is why some use it to lose weight. But for growing children who need to be eating plenty of healthy foods, that may not be a good thing. On the other hand, high levels of caffeine are often associated with high calorie counts. For example, at Starbucks, a venti-sized mocha frappuccino has 500 calories, a caramel brulee latte has 540, and a venti iced peppermint white chocolate mocha has 660 calories. So what can we do? Well, start by talking with your kids about caffeine in much the same way as you talk with them about drugs and cigarettes. Explain the health risks and why they should stay away from it. Next, read labels. In products where caffeine occurs naturally, such as coffee beans, it won't be listed. But if it's added, it must be included on the label. Today, added caffeine is showing up in foods such as gum, candy, chips, ice cream, sunflower seeds, and even oatmeal. And in non-food products, including deodorant, toothpaste, and lip balm. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.